Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. The news recently has been non-stop royals, royals, royals. That's right. The Royal Commission into Victoria's Mental Health Services released its report last week and its ramifications will be felt for generations. This morning on the show, we will begin to just scratch the surface of this impressively broad and comprehensive document. Now, a royal couple, it appears, has been doing a lot of bloodletting of late, and there's no one better to talk about blood than two professors of haematology, both of whom will be joining us on the panel So just who are our guests? Well, our first is an associate professor and psychiatrist who has managed one of the largest mental health services uh, in the state. He's got a stellar reputation as an expert clinician and as a top-notch manager. His only fault being that he once employed me, (laughs) the Falcon. And if you knew his real name, you'd appreciate what a terrific nom de plume that is. Yes, the Falcon is across every detail of mental health services in Victoria because naturally he has read every single word of the Royal Commission's 3,000 plus page report. We'll be chatting with the Falcon about some of the big ticket items and uh, its implications for all Victorians. Now, Professor Stephen Jane is the foundational dean of the subfaculty of translational medicine and public health at Monash University. He is also director of research for Alfred Hospital and a member of the clinical hematology service there. Stephen's research interests encompass developmental and acquired disorders of the blood. And you may have heard about a disorder called sickle cell disease. Sickle cell disease, that's right. It can have devastating effects. Steve is a world leader in researching sickle cell, and he'll be telling us about some of his latest discoveries. Professor Erica Wood is head of the Transfusion Research Unit at Monash University and a consultant haematologist at Monash University. She is also president of the International Society of Blood Transfusion, a member of the World Health Organization Expert Advisory Panel in Blood Safety, and has served as chief examiner in haematology for the Royal College of Pathologists of Australasia. Eric will be chatting with us about what's new in blood transfusion. Is it still ABO, rhesus positive and negative, or have they discovered other letters, EpiPen, and symbols on those teensy-wincy red cells? Erica will tell us all about it. And, of course, Nurse EpiPen and Dr. G-Spot, one will be in the studio, the other will be via Zoom. And you guys out there have got to figure out which one is which. They'll be in on the action too. So stick with me, Dr. Mal, and the team for the next hour of radiotherapy. Good morning, Nurse EpiPen. Good morning, Dr. Mal, Dr. G and all our guests. Isn't it great to be in the studio? Well, I, we sort of have been in the studio, but now we're side by side, and oh, you've just given away who's who's working from home and who's, who's oh, on Zoom. <laughs> terrible at secrets. I'm terrible. But this plexiglass thing's kind yeah. of like just for we listeners. We can't spit on each other. Yeah, like we used to. <laughs> when so, we get excited. So uh, just for listeners who uh, don't have a webcam uh, peering into our studio, we've got uh, plexiglass between each of us. So on it's a table, of, so it's like, like in the bank. the bank. Yeah, it's like yeah, being in a bank. Yeah. I'll have 20 bucks, please. Okay, no problems. <laughs> hey, now, uh, G-Spot, are you hearing us? 
I can indeed. It's so lovely to be with you. This is such a big show. I'm jumping out of my skin. And I also have to say that there are many people listening in in my hometown of Adelaide, and I want to give them a big shout out for listening in live. You know, the other thing that, you know, whenever you speak and I hear words in my uh, headphones, I, I have this this sigh of relief, like, yes, the technology is working. <laughs> yes, it is a big relief. Hey, look, we are so... Um, so happy and uh, I guess um, I, I've been waiting for this for a long time to have the Falcon on because the, the, the release of the, the Royal Commission's uh, report has been monumental for, for health services, uh, not just for mental health services, but basically for all Victorians. And we've got a guy that is really all over the report, has read into it, knows about it and can answer all our questions. And that's the Falcon. Morning, Falcon. Good morning, Dr. Mel. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to uh, to having this chat this morning. Now, now, just for people that maybe haven't been listening to the news for the last couple of weeks, just tell us what what, what is this Royal Commission report into mental health? Tell us all about it, how it started a couple of years ago and what it's where, where we've come to now. Well, um, I guess for many many years now. Um, uh, people have recognised that um, the mental health system was not delivering um, in the way that um, the people wanted it to deliver. Uh, and in particular, you know, there were many stories of people seeking help uh, who were not able to get the help that they wanted when they wanted it. Uh, we heard lots of stories of tragedies. The people working in the system uh, felt um, uh, under huge pressure at times, uh, experienced, you know, what they, uh, what the College of Psychiatrists referred to as moral peril, uh, working in this environment. Uh, and in 2018, uh, the Premier announced that, um, uh, that uh, in his opinion, the system was broken and he called uh, for a Royal Commission. Uh, and really, this has been one of the most comprehensive inquiries, I think, into a mental health system in any jurisdiction that I'm aware of. Um, and it's been particularly exciting because it hasn't really looked for easy answers. Uh, it has, you know, uh, delved deeply into the system. It's tried to understand all of the different factors um, that operate uh, in, uh, uh, in, in, within the system and the solutions it has proposed are quite comprehensive. There's 74 recommendations in total, 65 from the final report, nine from an interim uh, report that was released in November uh, 2019 uh, and they together they really do uh, represent a, a massive opportunity for us to finally get this right. Yeah, I've got to say, I, I... I've only just begun to scratch the surface of the report and it's it's incredibly granular in places and incredibly kind of uh, bird's eye view in places as well. And it, 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 it basically just, from my understanding, it just looks as if let's start building it rather than just cobbling on new things here and there type of stuff. Can you give us an example of, say, one of the recommendations that, that you find interesting or you think will have significant effects? There's so many of them. Yeah, um, yeah. The, um, look, I, I think there's a couple for me that, that really do stand out. The first is the recommendation to redesign the system architecture. Now, what that means um, is that's a reference to the way in which um, services are set up uh, in the community, in hospitals, uh, and right across, um, uh, you know, what, what we would term both clinical and um, well-being uh, uh, services. So uh, when people suffer from mental um, ill health, 
they have a need for uh, both clinical care, but also for what has been in the past termed psychosocial care. And in the past, there have been problems uh, uh, with both the availability of clinical care, the options available in clinical care, and indeed the availability of psychosocial care. So this is an attempt to put it all together. Uh, and, and one of the uh, recommendations that I'm really excited about is the development of uh, local mental health and well-being uh, uh, centres, clinics. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, you, you may have heard of um, the, the whole uh, concept of the missing middle. Uh, there's been long a recognition that there's a group of uh, people who miss out on mental health care because their problems are too complex for GPs to deal with, uh, but not uh, severe enough. Uh, for tertiary services, hospital services Mm. to deal with. And so they've missed out. uh, And they've missed out uh, not because they did not have a significant need, um, but because the system had not been designed to meet those needs. So these local mental health and wellbeing centres will, over time, uh, uh, you know, provide... uh, provide for people who find themselves in this situation. Uh, there'll be 60, 50 to 60 of them across the state of Victoria, approximately one for every 100,000 people, so they'll be very local. Uh, and, uh, you know, it'll be easy to get um, into them. You know, you'll be able to pick up the phone, walk into a clinic, get your GP to refer you without um, some of the barriers that people have experienced in accessing, uh, you know, specialist services um, in Victoria to date. And who, uh, just to take, for example, those wellbeing centres, who are they staffed by? Is it psychiatrists, is it social workers, psychologists? So I, think, I think the models, you know, so the, you, you made a really interesting point there at the beginning that some of the recommendations are very granular and some very high level. I mean, there's still a lot of work to be done to try and uh, work out um, exactly uh, how some of these centres, uh, you know, some of these centres and indeed how some of the recommendations are actually going to play out. Mm. So... Um, the, the probably the closest example I can think of at this point in time uh, are the headspace centres mm. for young people, mm. uh, and, um, um, and 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 the way they've been set up by the Commonwealth government, they they basically provide a platform, uh, and uh, within each clinic you'll find uh, you know psychiatrists and psychologists, other mental health uh, workers. Um, uh, quite a number of them have got relationships with local hospitals, and and so you'll find specialists who you know, provide services within the centre itself. There are employment services, there are drug and alcohol services, and you'll even find GPs. Mm. That's the kind of model, I think, that we're um, trying to put together. Now, the Headspace centres have had their critics, um, but fundamentally I think some of the issues that they've experienced have really not so much been related to the concept as to the funding. Uh, And, and, you know, uh, we think that... um, uh, that we'll see, you know, this uh, kind of model uh, continue to evolve uh, and, and provide that multidisciplinary care that people need uh, when they're um, suffering from mental ill health and psychological distress. Um, the Falcon, I'm supposed to sing it. Um, Mal was telling me this morning. Dun, 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 dun. Anyway, um, not to be flippant about this, but um, with, with these hubs or local clinics that you're suggesting, what about supporting families as well as the patient? Because they're really brought into this um, conundrum with people being mentally unwell. Yes. So the um, um, the Royal Commission. Uh, very specifically looked at the needs of families, carers and supporters. Uh, and um, and indeed, that was one of the terms of reference uh, within the Royal Commission. And there are quite a number of um, uh, recommendations uh, that look uh, to supporting um, um, uh, to supporting families. I, I think for many years now, 
families have experienced a great deal of frustration in having to carry uh, often the burden of care, um, but then being excluded at the moment of, um, you know, of the highest need. And so many carers have, and, and families have talked about their frustration that when their loved one is admitted to hospital, they find it hard to access information. They find it hard to uh, be involved uh, in, in treatment planning and discharge planning, that kind of thing. So there are some very specific recommendations now uh, in the, um, uh, in the final report, the, um, uh, uh to make sure that um, that the system um, engages uh, uh, families, carers, and supporters um, by employing uh, uh, people as family uh, peer workers, uh, involving uh, family workers and, and uh, families uh, in the design and the delivery of services. And there'll also be some very specific services as well. Um, there'll be a, a carer, a family and carer-led centre in each of the eight regions that are being set up across Victoria, uh, and these will pr- provide tailored information uh, and supports uh, for families, carers and supporters. Mm-hmm. And so people will actually have a place where uh, they can go quite separate from health services uh, mm-hmm. and uh, go for a support and advice uh, for, and, and especially important for, for support and advice from people who understand what it's like uh, to be in this situation, from peers who've experienced exactly the same sorts of things. So this is going to be hugely valuable. Um, and there'll also be other, um, there'll be other initiatives for uh, young people who are supporting parents uh, with, uh, uh, with mental ill health and mm. psychological distress. Mm. This is uh, very exciting, I think, um, and many carers felt very emotional, I think, uh, when, when they had the opportunity to, um, uh, to look at the final report and, and get a sense um, that they had not been uh, forgotten. Uh, of course, now the, the proof of the pudding will be in the eating and we have to work diligently in order to translate this into reality. Do you know, um, the, probably the strongest theme that came through the report for just my glancing at it was lived experience, that people with lived experience were integral into the forming of the report, the writing of the report and the implementation of the recommendations of the report. And that, for me, was just such a powerfully good message. It is, of course. And, and this is the way the system, um, this is how, how the system will operate mm. now in mm. the future. Uh, and I think it's a really positive step. I think, you know, anybody who's worked in a clinical setting understands uh, that when people are involved uh, in the decisions that are made um, about their health and mm. about their lives, when families are there to support them uh, and to participate in that process, that the outcomes are always better. Uh, and I think, you know, we've moved away, we are moving away, I should say, from, you know, a paternalistic approach uh, to healthcare. I think this is something that all of healthcare has been challenged with. And let's face it, when you or I, or, you know, or anybody in this sort of conversation at the moment um, seeks healthcare, we want to be um, uh, in control. We want to, mm. you know, we want to be the sort of key decision makers. Mm. And, you know, people with mental ill health and psychological distress for many, many years have had to suffer the indignity uh, of, uh, of not being treated mm. in that way. Mm. Uh, and we need to move um, you know, we, we, we need to do better in this regard. There are still going to be quite big challenges, um, but, um, uh, but this is a really important um, uh, step forward. Um, I was trying to communicate uh, the magnitude of this uh, report to, to some friends who aren't in the area. And I, I was, I mean, the example that came to mind, the comparable example, comparable-ish, 
was like the introduction of Medicare. I mean, it's that big. It's, you know, or I don't know, the Olympic Games. It's, it's, it's monumentally huge in terms of its implications for the life of, uh, of Victorians is the way that I see it. What would you, what would you compare it to? Because I can see you're looking askance at me, like thinking, really? <laughs> no, I'm not looking askance. Um, uh, Dr. Melvin's is my uh, Sunday morning look. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, um, actually, I think this is um, uh, this is this is a profound um, piece of um, uh, reform that has been mm. proposed. Uh, you know, year after year, we've seen so many. You know, uh, for, for those of us who've been in the sector for the last twenty or thirty years, we've seen so many reports and inquiries, and they always seem to tinker around the edges. Yeah. If we yeah. take this report seriously, this is this is rebuilding the system. Uh, Have there been yeah. other? countries which have got a similar kind of uh, framework laid out? I mean, I, 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 I really can't think of, of any countries. Which I'm, I'm not aware of, yeah. of any uh, jurisdiction, you know. Oh, jurisdictions, I'm, I should say. I'm not aware yeah. of any jurisdiction that has yeah. done something quite like this before. I may be wrong and I, I stand yeah. corrected, obviously. Um, the um, um, many sort of uh, comparable countries, of course, um, have, uh, you know, multiple state jurisdictions. It's hard to sort of keep across all of them, but I'm, I'm not aware of uh, anything quite as comprehensive as this. Um, uh, Falcon, just a question about funding. Do you believe it's going to be adequate and prolonged? Um, I, look, I think... I'm not sure I understood the question um, fully because uh, the sound's not, not, um, not the best, but the... I think it, it, um, the the Royal Commission has uh, sort of established very clearly that uh, funding has been inadequate, uh, and I think the uh, Victorian government has made a very clear commitment uh, to rectifying that. Uh, we've seen huge um, improvements in funding over the last several years, uh, and and I think the commitment that's being made um, that we've read about in the in the papers that's being um, that's being made by the Victorian government will be a substantial one. Uh, so I'm I'm very optimistic. Uh, and um, and I think um, I think we should um, we should all look forward um, to what is really the the main task now, of course, which is to make it all work and make it all happen. Terrific. Terrific. I'm not sure, Falcon, if you've seen pages. I think it's 680. I was directed to to this particular page by uh, Dr. Doolittle, who said uh, they've quoted me in several pages of the report and said what a great job I'm doing. So I actually downloaded the report and. Uh, and uh, took him at his word. He actually uh, has been quoted. So a member of the panel has uh, has has gotten their words into uh, the Royal Commission's report, and um, he 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 speaks very well when he has to, doesn't he? We're very pleased for him. Now. <laughs> no. Okay, Falcon. Look, uh, I'm going to get your commitment on air to come back and to go through some of the recommendations uh, in further shows, because as you say, there were 74 of them. Um, you know, nine from the interim report, 65 from the present uh, final report, and really lots to go through. Really, some really really good stuff. Can I get that commitment? Yeah, I'd love to. Yes. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Ray. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Hello and welcome back. You're listening to Triple R. You're with Dr. Malpractice, EpiPen and Dr. G-Spot and it's our absolute pleasure to welcome Professor Stephen Jane to the line. Welcome, Steve. Uh, welcome, Dr. Spot. <laughs> Thank you so much. Dr. Spot. Dr. Spot. I know. <laughs> I don't know her well enough to call her by her first name yet. So All right. I'm trying I think to keep I... it formal. <laughs> nice try, Steve. Um... <laughs> 
Okay. I thought you said you were playing it straight, but you've already given us a gag. So thank you. So we've all had to go for a blood test at some point in our lives. And clearly blood's an important indicator of our health. So who better to speak to us than your good self? And I will say that blood is one of my favourite bodily fluids. So I won't say what my favourite is. I'm hoping right at the top, actually. (laughs) It actually is. Um, So tell us, what does haematology what does haematology involve? Why would you dedicate your life to the study of haematology? Well, as you say, blood's pretty important. About a quarter of the world's population has a deficiency in blood, so it's a pretty prevalent disease. Uh, it's actually a symptom of a disease, not an actual disease itself. So anemia, which is the readout of uh, lack of blood, can be caused by all sorts of things. And uh, I got into it uh, at a young age uh, because I think I like both the clinical and the laboratory side, and that's one of the few medical specialties where those two are uh, intertwined. So that's how I got into it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I suppose... Um, I know that you're very passionate about sickle cell disease in particular. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so sickle cell disease uh, is an abnormality in the gene that makes haemoglobin, which carries the oxygen in the red blood cells. And uh, it's present in about 10% of the world population. So it's an enormous health burden. But it's in areas where malaria exists. And paradoxically, the reason that the mutation has survived in the human population, because normally we're pretty good at getting rid of mutations, uh, is that it protects against malaria. So you've got a disease gene that's actually beneficial in some circumstances, but obviously is devastating uh, in its own right in terms of causing blood problems. That's, that's so interesting and obviously why that mutation has uh, perpetuated, as mm. you said. Have you noticed, I suppose, any kind of shifts in the, the prevalence of sickle cell disease in Australia? Like, Yeah, uh, it, it's fascinating. So if you look at the global map of malaria, obviously it doesn't involve Australia, but in the 1950s there was a huge Greek migration particularly and, and Italian uh, to Melbourne largely. So Melbourne became an enormous thalassemia population, which is a disease similar to sickle cell disease and another disease that involves uh, haemoglobin mutations. And then more recently with the Sudanese migration, we've had a huge influx of patients carrying the sickle cell gene as well. So very much migration patterns. And that, of course, was true for the African-American migration where sickle cell became a very prevalent disease in, in North America. Yeah, yeah. So what can we do for people with sickle cell disease? Like what treatments are available? Look, there's sort of been treatments been around for a number of years, but I think what's really exciting is what's coming. Um, And that is the ability to actually change the genome in the patients with sickle cell disease. So the idea is you take their blood cells out of their body, you can edit the blood cell, correct the defect in that cell, and then put it back into the patient like an autologous transplantation. So they don't have any problems with tissue rejection and so on, but the gene defect is actually being corrected in their own cells. And this has certainly been done in mice, and there's some early data correction in humans, and I think this is going to be a, a treatment for the future, which is just, you know, groundbreaking. So, Steve, awesome. do you take out the... the um... I guess the stem cell that makes yep. the red cell change yep. that gene, and so you pop it back in, and then for life the patient is pretty much Correct. cured of it. Yeah, absolutely, wow. Rob. Yeah. Wow. And the good thing about sickle cell, it's just one single change in the DNA, yeah. one single position. So it's a very simple transition. He says simple in inverted yeah. commas, but simple to change one thing, put it back in, and then for life the patient's got correction. Wow. Are there are there yeah. other examples of that having been done for other disorders? 
Um, look, sickle's probably the leading cab off the rank in that. It was, yeah. I think, the first genetic disease that was characterised at a molecular level. It's been known for, you know, 60, 70 years what the mutation was. So it's probably the first. But you're right, Rob, there are going to be other genetic diseases that follow along here yeah. for sure. Yeah. But the good thing about blood is it's accessible, you know. Like if you've got a problem with a gene in the brain, it's hard to get it out and put it back in again. But yeah. blood, you can just, you know, pull it out of the hip from the bone marrow, fix it up and then infuse it just via a drip into the arm. So mm. it's simple. Mm. I've just got a question about why it's important to treat sickle cell disease. So would you like to comment about sickle cell crisis? Yeah, so the problem with the haemoglobin is it's not that you don't make it, you make it, but it's faulty. And what it prevents the red blood cells uh, doing is being able to manoeuvre through the tiny spaces they have to go to reach the tips of your fingers, the ends of your nose and so on. So the cells, instead of being nice and malleable to get through those tiny spaces, can't deform and squinch up and they block. So essentially, wherever you get tissues with blockages, you get lack of oxygen and that causes infarction, like heart attack is a blockage of an artery leading to lack of oxygen. So these, this is happening in children. These are little kids who are under 10 years of age and they get essentially blockage and incredible pain syndromes in all their body. They go blind, they lose their kidneys, But pain is the main issue. Most of these kids are on major doses of opioids just to try and keep them under control from a pain perspective. It's a pretty devastating disease, to be honest. And some even have big spleens, which is my interest. Uh, They do, but it's actually one of the diseases that actually can infarct the spleen. Mm. So the the vessels going into the spleen can block and the spleen can actually atrophy and disappear. Mm. So uh, it's a situation that creates risks for infection, as you probably know, that once Mm. the spleen's gone, you're you're at much higher risk of certain infections. So these kids are really prone to infections because of their spleen and other issues. Steve, I could be imagining it because that happens a fair bit with me, but I I remember watching a TV show uh, recently and a new... New medication had come out for kids with sickle cell disease, which had had really changed their life. Is, was I imagining that, or that actually happened? No, no, no. It's, you weren't imagining, Rob. You yeah. actually were awake and watching. Was, That's uh, true. Okay. So one of the one, one of the funny things with sickle cell disease is um, we make a form of hemoglobin while we're still inside our mother called fetal hemoglobin, right. and it's that hemoglobin switches off at birth. Yeah. But if you're lucky enough to ha- inherit another mutation where instead of switching off, that gene stays on. So fetal hemoglobin keeps getting made. You are protected. The fetal hemoglobin is a good guy. So they've now found medications that can turn on the fetal hemoglobin in adult patients. And that has led to a significant game change in sickle cell disease. It's not curative, but it certainly, you know, improves symptoms, no doubt. I'm just going to hijack one more question from uh, Dr. G. Um, you can turn on a gene with a drug, uh, like a vestigial gene. Is that is that again? Has that been done elsewhere in medicine? I'm just trying well, to think. Yeah, I mean, there's there are lots of examples where genes can be influenced by medication. Um, so, a, a vestigial sorry, like a gene from like from a feet from fetal times. That's, that seems to be quite extraordinary. Yeah, I think it, it, it's probably one of the best examples yeah. of where, as you say, a gene that has been silenced from birth. Yeah. And, and, you know, the body's pretty good at making sure that genes that shouldn't be expressed are turned off and locked. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it is quite an impressive yeah. feat to, you know, give a single drug as a tablet and find that you can reactivate a gene that's been, you know, evolutionary silenced from birth. I just find that amazing. Sorry, Jason. Mm. 
Not at all, Dr. Malpractice. Um, so, Steve, like we're talking about some, I suppose, good news stories here in hematology. I know you have plenty of clinical experience. What are some of your, I suppose, favourite patient stories? Uh, I think probably my favourite patient story uh, was uh, a lady I looked after for a number of years who had uh, a, a condition that led to an increase in one of the cells in her blood and it's a pre-leukemic condition. So you can go on for years just with this increased number of cells, but ultimately that uh, particular condition can transform into a, an unpleasant condition, acute leukemia. Anyway, I, I remember this lady clearly because she came in to see me on her 90th birthday and she said, guess what I'm doing for my 90th? I said, oh, what, what are you planning? She said, I'm going parachute jumping. <laughs> I, said, I said, Margaret, you've got a big spleen and a blood condition. You are definitely not going parachute jumping. So she was a bit crestfallen, but anyway, I saw her three months later and I said to her, so what did you end up doing for your birthday? And she said, uh, I didn't go parachute jumping. I bought an iPad instead. So it just showed you at 90, she was going brilliantly. Anyway, tragically, she got acute leukaemia about two years later. And it was just at the time that the new drug Venetoclax had been launched, uh, discovered at the Walter Eliza Hall and, and developed and commercialised, one of Australia's great success stories. And uh, I went into a meeting with all the team and I said, I think we should give this patient a trial of the new. They said, she's 92. We're not true. I said, she's fantastic. She's biologically 70. So we gave her this treatment and she had one course, went into complete remission and remains in complete remission. She's now 98 and still going strong. So that was a great story. I think my question is, did she actually go parachute jumping? She didn't. She decided... Oh to take the advice and not do it. I mean, I hate to think it wasn't only her spleen. I mean, I think she could have constituted every bone in her body as well, but so she didn't luckily. Maybe the iPad went parachute jumping instead. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Okie dokie. Well, that's, I love those kinds of stories. Um, I suppose something that I notice in my clinical practice that's blood related is people who faint at the sight of blood. What's going on there? Yeah, so it, it's been known for years and years, and it's not necessarily just blood. It's I think we're known to have reactions like that to any sort of traumatic circumstance. And there's been a bit of study uh, going on it, and it's, it's linked to a certain nerve in the body that controls blood pressure and heart rate. So it's when you see something that shocks you, that nerve gets overstimulated and then leads to changes in pressure and heart, and that can lead to you hitting the deck, basically. So, yeah. Does that happen with your patients? Like, have you seen that happen? Well, they're on the other side of the coin, basically. The blood's in them rather than outside. But I've certainly seen it happen um, with medical students and so on coming into in ED. They walk into a you know a particular trauma scene and then suddenly you've got one patient on trauma on the bed and another on the ground. Do you think that would prohibit them from becoming doctors? I don't know about that. I have met a few doctors who are not very excited about blood, so they've chosen other specialties. Like psychiatry, I think that's always a good one to go into. I, 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 was, al I almost <laughs> fainted at the sight of blood when I was 13. I still remember. I was, I was waiting for the digs about psychiatry to come out. Thank you I so promised much I for wouldn't, that. I promised Dr. Spot I wouldn't, so I, I apologise. Oh, well, you couldn't help yourself. That's fine. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. Um, so I suppose something, and I think um, our next guest, Erica, will pick up on this more, but um, we all know about different blood types. Why do we have different blood types? I think that's a question for a transfusionist, really, okay. rather than... A hematologist, no worries. Yeah, Erica, I, do you want to leap into blood types? Oh, well, I think we're going to keep Erica on ice till the next oh, segment because we're, we're building the drama. 
This is we are. <laughs> we are. I actually, I have a, a blood type joke. If you're willing to hear it, it's a oh, bit of a that dad was joke. the reason for the segue. Okay, go for it. What is the most commonly misspelled blood group? Which one? Typo. Oh! <laughs> Come on. If, if, the, if the listeners could see the reactions here, it's just amazing. I know. Oh, that I, is gold. All right. Sorry, sorry, Steve. I know our you relationship chopped. is over now. But um, thank this you. Is a, this is a comedy program, isn't <laughs> it? I, can, I, I know. Can, I can see Steve for the next 10 years using that at the start of each lecture with medical students. <laughs> hey, guys. Yeah. Which one's... <laughs> Pretty sure I'm not, Rob. Uh, no, I guess, well, I'm going to start using it. I'm using it next week with the medical students. Which one is the most? Hey, um, enough, St- Steve, enough. can I ask you some other questions? Because, I mean, you really are at the forefront of translational research, which means taking research from the bench in the laboratory and translating it into clinical practice. Where do you see the next five years of translational research in medicine? I mean, what are the big things that are in the pipeline? I think the most exciting aspect in the last sort of five years that that sort of heralds what's coming is the the revolution in genetics and our understanding of the molecular basis Mm. of disease and then the ability to act and influence that. So I I gave you one example of gene correction, which is just, you know, mind-boggling and who would have thought, you know, a few years ago. Mm. Um, But I think also the concept of personalised therapies where you can start to actually interrogate a particular illness, a cancer, for example, and understand what are the actual disease gene changes that are driving that and then specifically target it. Like in the old days, everyone was, you know, you were characterised as you might have breast cancer Mm. and every breast cancer was just considered Mm. breast cancer Mm. and you were treated with X. But nowadays we can substratify that into, you know, innumerable different Mm. types and classes and then all of those can have much more specific therapies and that's the way we're heading. That's the revolution that's coming, I think. So do you think in sort of five, ten years' time you'll go in with, you go into hospital, say, with a a skin cancer or something like that and it will be typed for its genetics and then you will get a specific type of treatment for that type of genetic type of cancer? Yeah, I mean, that's already happening, you know, to a large extent, but it'll become more and more prevalent as we have greater and greater understanding and greater development of drugs specifically targeting those defects. Yeah. Well, hopefully we'll get you on the show before five years' time and we can ask you some of the other developments that have been going on in your field and in other fields. Um, well, in five years, you might have to find me on the golf course or somewhere else, I think. <laughs> well, like, where, about, where about, you know, it looks like Byron Bay. Uh, that's, that's Point Lonsdale Lighthouse, actually. No, it's not bad. And that's just a background, isn't it? Now, G-Spot, um, you had some some final words to say. To I did. I wanted to Prof. ask Jane? Steve, you know how we... No more jokes, know... please. Oh, jeez. You know you love old. them. Uh, <laughs> I'm still I, laughing. I do... I do think Steve will never come back on our show after this, but I'll, I'll try. Um, so you know how there's always something that you wish your patients knew or, or did, um, like something to help their blood health. What advice do you give our listeners? Mm, good question. Look, I honestly, this is going to sound completely dull, but I think eat well is really critical. Um, you know, iron deficiency, for example, is an incredibly common condition in our society. Um, and a, a significant amount of it is dietary, that people just don't eat healthy foods that contain the right nutrients and so on. So I think a really good balanced diet is, you know, really important for your blood health and it's about the most important thing you can do for it, really. Okay. Any foods in particular? Well, I mean, 
there, this may not be popular, but some red meat is important. But, you know, failing that, then lots of good things, Popeye, green spinach and leafy veggies are all very important for iron intake and the other vitamins that are critical for blood production. So eat well. Will do. Thank you. Thank you so much, Professor Stephen Jane. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. I have the great pleasure of reminding you who we have on next, and this is Professor Erica Wood, who's the head of transfusion re- uh, the Transfusion Research Unit at Monash University and is a haematologist, but also she's got a special interest in blood transfusions and is a, wait for this, World Health Organisation expert on the panel for blood safety. And I think we will kick off with asking her about blood transfusions. And let's start with a basic question. Who, who needs a blood transfusion, Erica? Well, hi, everyone. Uh, good question. Uh, sometimes uh, uh, people uh, are unclear why we might still need blood transfusions in 2021. But for people with major bleeding from any cause, you know, trauma, sur- major surgery, gastrointestinal bleeding, obstetric hemorrhage, uh, many of those people will need a blood transfusion, often urgently, to help save their lives. And then as we were talking uh, earlier, or Steve was talking about patients with inherited blood disorders like thalassemia and sickle cell disease may need either regular transfusions in the case of thalassemia major, something like that, or uh, uh, sickle cell patients may need them regularly or occasionally. And then there are, for example, large groups of uh, patients, uh, such as patients with blood cancers, leukemia, lymphoma, or bone marrow failure syndromes who might need blood transfusions. So many people are really dependent on blood transfusions in the way we think of them as red cells, platelets, plasma, but also things made from donated plasma where we can take coagulation factors or immunoglobulins, uh, which are basically antibodies uh, to help people either with immune deficiencies or for to make things, you know, for like tetanus immunoglobulin. Uh, people often don't realise that these are made from plasma, donated plasma. Mm, fascinating. So and maybe let's step back even more to the basic question. How is blood made? So uh, blood cells are made in the uh, bone marrow and um, there are different types of blood cells as we were already talking about this morning. So red blood cells, which carry oxygen, and then a whole range of different white blood cells, which fight infection in different ways, and platelets, which help the blood clot. And uh, platelets are in fact fragments of much larger cells, megakaryocytes, and the platelets bud off uh, from the cytoplasm uh, uh, of the megakaryocytes in the bone marrow come out in the circulation and uh, in the circulate around in the plasma, uh, which carries all sorts of other things as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Dr. G-Spot um, touched on different blood groups. Why, why, would, why do we have different blood groups? Well, uh, all blood groups likely have some biological function or even more than one, but we don't yet know all of these. Uh, Some of them are well understood. For for example, some 
um, act as receptors for different types of malaria, as uh, Steve Jane was oh. talking about uh, before. And, and this allows the, uh, if the uh, molecule is there, the, that uh, we happen to, th- uh, might have discovered as a blood group, um, then the parasite can enter the cell. So if you don't carry these blood group types, then uh, your cells might be protected uh, from malaria or substantially so. And then other blood groups are associated with uh, the ability of malaria parasites to cause severe malaria by uh, clumping, by the red cells clumping together. And these blood groups are inherited and there are different frequencies in different parts of the populations who've originated in different parts of the world. Um, and this is important because some of these environmental pressures, such as malaria, probably played a, played a big uh, role. But there are other blood groups that function as things like um, channels, say for water molecules uh, in and out of the cell, these kinds of things. But we don't know about all of the uh, functions of different blood groups yet. Erica, so what, a, lot, a lot more work to do. Is it still a BO? Yes, uh, well, there there are more than thirty different blood group systems, um, uh, which have been classified as systems, and there are probably in the order of three hundred or more different uh, blood group antigens that are not yet classified into systems. Um, so ABO uh, and RH are the most important in terms of um, uh, general medicine and, and transfusion, but uh, there are lots of other uh, lots of other blood group antigens that have uh, biological importance uh, and probably health importance uh, as well, even though we don't know about all of that yet. All right. Well. Erica, what we're going to do, just for a mo, we're going to cross to some sponsorship announcements, um, Mm -hmm. come back, and in the meanwhile, I'm going to ask Dr G-Spot to tell me what those other 300 types of antigens (laughs) are. It's a test. (laughs) It's a test. We're just going to play some sponsorship announcements. Be back in a second with some more radiotherapy. But, you know, before one does that, there's this little thing called a computer. I'm not sure if you guys at home have to use a computer. I have to use a computer every day. And sometimes you just got to click it like this. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Um, so, Erica, could you just talk to us about blood safety? What, what, what does that mean and what's dangerous about a blood transfusion? Well, uh, blood for transfusion in Australia is very safe. Um, We're fortunate because in our country we have volunteer blood donors, we have careful uh, uh, pre-donation screening, we test all the blood with very sensitive uh, tests prior to uh, using it uh, for transfusion. And these are uh, maybe underappreciated parts of the, the safety chain. Uh, but they're very important. So blood is very safe from infectious diseases in Australia. That's not the case all around the world. Uh, so we're very fortunate. And then we need to make sure that we use it safely. So when um, people are having a blood transfusion, we need to make sure we uh, collect the sample and label it properly and give it back to the right person because we know from uh, many years of collecting data that, in fact, human errors probably account for more complications of blood transfusion um, uh, in countries like Australia uh, than uh, infectious diseases. So we need to be really careful. So if you're having a 
blood sample taken or need a transfusion. That's why we ask you so many questions about identifying yourself. Well, that's that's very reassuring. And just in case there's some listeners out there that would like to donate some blood, what, what would they do to start that process? Well, firstly, uh, even thinking about it, thank you for thinking about it. And if you are a blood donor, thanks for doing it even once. Uh, Only about 3% of the population ever donate blood, but maybe as many as one third of people might need a blood transfusion or something made from blood in their lifetime. So uh, if you are aged 18 to 76 and generally healthy, then um, uh, you might be eligible to donate blood. And the Australian Red Cross Lifeblood has a website, uh, donateblood.com.au, where you can find out all the information about that. Um, You know, make sure you're not anemic, that uh, you've got a minimum weight, you don't have any uh, health uh, issues that might put you at risk for donating Mm. blood or for some someone to receive your blood. We need blood every day. So thank you. Erica, I got a question from a listener um, texted in and she's quite, she's quite certain that mosquitoes prefer different types of people. And she thinks it's because of their blood type. What do you reckon about that? Well, uh, that may be true. I haven't asked enough mosquitoes to be really (laughs) sure. Well, there's an NHMRC um... grant just waiting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So uh, there are almost uh, uh, certainly some biological variables uh, that uh, will affect uh, 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 these kinds of preferences. Um, Whether this makes a big difference in in practice, uh, we're not really Mm. uh, sure. Mm. And I'm not a malaria expert, so I probably couldn't comment further on that. And hmm. uh, um, um, one of the points that you gave me on the list of things that you're interested, especially in research topics, is convalescent plasma for COVID nineteen. What what what's happening there? Well, um, the reason I, I uh, raised this um, with EpiPen when we were talking about this segment was that this has been a lot in the news and is going to be in the news more. So convalescent plasma is made from plasma donated by people who've been infected with and recovered from COVID-19 and they carry antibodies against the virus and the idea is that this might be able to help people who either haven't made an antibody yet or might never be able to maybe from an underlying condition. So there was a number of large trials that have been testing this uh, out this question And three very large trials, including one of them with more than 11,000 people, have all closed early because of evidence of no benefit of this treatment. Mm. And so this is very important because many people have received convalescent plasma, for example, in North America, outside the setting of clinical trials, maybe 100,000 people. Uh, And we understand why people might want to use it. But if it doesn't work, we need to know. If it does work, we do need to know as well. It's so weird. It's... some of those trials uh, have reported either in preprint or, you know, on Twitter, but uh, we're waiting for the peer-reviewed uh, papers to come out. But from the U- big UK recovery trial, it l- looks pretty clear that there's no evidence of benefit or evidence of no benefit, mm. I should yeah, say. Yeah, w- watch this space. Yeah. Um, we're sadly coming to the end of our show and I- I'm bloody disappointed about that because I could keep talking about blood for a long time time Mm. but um, we'd love to thank our guests uh, Professor Jane, Professor, a few professors, Professor Wood and um, the Falcon that was on the the show. The Falcon, you've got to sing his name. Uh, The Falcon (laughs) and uh, the wonderful Dr G-Spot and Dr Mal. Hi, 
This is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.